so much. Well, good morning. It's a great privilege to be with you guys, and I am uh, excited to be here. Uh, this is my wife, Jennifer. We've been married 18 years. We have uh, two teenagers, so now you know how to pray for us, and we are excited uh, to be here in North Texas, and this morning with you particularly. Uh, Todd has given me the uh, dubious privilege of preaching Acts chapter 15, which if you've read through Acts before and uh, learning about life lessons, you'll know that this is not a, a very easy text to, to walk through. Uh, so as we turn to Acts 15, I'm also going to ask you to turn, first of all, to Romans chapter 15. And I think Romans chapter 15 will set up a uh, theological setting for us. I have uh, spent uh, years doing collegiate ministry. That's kind of how my wife and I have been uh, geared. It's called teaching toward university students. And so as the Lord uh, brought us to uh, Texas a couple years ago, and uh, we've been on church staff. Uh, we were at the Village Church for a year uh, doing just covenant membership there, and then uh, been on staff at Rock Point Church for the last year and a half, and uh, we've, we've loved living in North Texas. Uh, and here's what I love about North Texas, as, I, we, as we drive the vast expanse, and we pass all these many churches, on Sundays, it just, it thrills my heart to know that as we're worshiping here, uh, right here in Flower Mound, to know that God is being glorified all over North Texas. I know there's a lot of folks at the lake, a lot of folks playing golf, a lot of folks in bed, right? A lot of folks that need to hear Christ. But how awesome is it to know that our church is deep in worship around the throne of God this morning, and your church has been led to worship this morning, and that all over the world today, the name of God is being lifted up, and people's lives are being irreparably changed for the glory of Jesus Christ. And that's what I love about being part of the body of Christ. I don't know you guys. You guys don't know me at all. But I'm very comfortable to be with you because you're brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, and my passion is to give him glory with my life, and that's your passion is to let your life live for his glory, and so we're excited this morning to be with you. Thank you for the privilege of allowing me to be here just for the next few minutes as we kind of break open uh, the word of God. This morning in Acts 15, the, the, the kind of the theme of the chapter is conflict. We see really for the first time in the New Testament church a major conflict, and so we are we're going to look this morning, how do we handle conflict? And so I've titled the message this morning, A Healthy Conflict, uh, A Scriptural Charge. Now, I know that most of you guys in this church, Todd told me all about you guys uh, a few weeks ago, that you guys don't have a lot of problems. You know, money's not an issue for you guys. You guys have phenomenal marriages. Your children are all angels. There's no issues here, really. So I know this message doesn't have any practical import for you all. But just humor me all the same as if you had problems or as if one day you might have a problem, right? We might have somewhere to go back to. Now, I'm a teaching pastor, which means a lot less of illustrations and a lot less of uh, maybe fluff. If you'd like to take notes, I want to give you some notes to take this morning. You want to find something to write on on the back of your elevation page there. Uh, if you need something to write with, you can grab some uh, chapstick, some lipstick, grab a pen, do whatever you can do. I want to give you some practical notes, I think that will help you as a believer in Christ as you sojourn for the next several years, how has God given us a scriptural pattern for healthy conflict? Now, here's, here's what's powerful. Uh, you can find the best of relationships and the best of friendships. You can find the best of marriages, even a great church like Elevation Church, and you still have conflict. Heard a story of several years ago, there's a, a fellow who was stranded on a, a desert island, and he was stranded there for years, and he was, uh, he was very bored, and so he, he started to use his mind and started to build and construct, and he kind of created his own little village. 
Well, it happened to be about seven, eight years into it that he was rescued. There was a, a boat that came off this island, and, they, and he, he kind of waved him down. They rescued him, and as they came upon the island, before he left this island for good, he wanted to show them around. And so he said, listen, over here, I have built my house, this great structure, you know, like the Swiss Family Robinson house. It was awesome. And he says, over here, I built a place for, uh, you know, for entertainment. And then here, I built a church. I wanted to worship the living God. And they said, well, what about, what's that great building over there? He goes, oh, that's my other church where I used to worship. <laughs> the point is, even when we're left to our own devices at times, we find ourselves in, unfortunately, church splits, church divisions, church issues. We sometimes find conflict on our own. Uh, because of our nature, our sin nature, we don't need a lot of help. Uh, time and time again, in our, our marriage of 18 years, I know that uh, I thought, man, you know, I don't know if I can weather this conflict. Uh, my wife is typically always right, and I'm typically always wrong, and that's how God made it, so that's cool. But I just have to get there to that point of realizing in my heart, you know, how do I die to self and be of service? And I struggle daily at that in my life, for sure. This morning in, in Acts 15, we see a, a pattern. But before we dive there, I want to ask you to turn to Romans 15. And Romans 15 is a, a beautiful place for us to start. Um, if you didn't bring your Bible, it'll be up on the screen this morning. I just want to read kind of a theological setting, a charge from Paul. And Paul, who we see in Acts 15, is having to deal with his theological struggle and the spiritual issue one-on-one. He writes this several years later. And I believe he sets kind of the pattern. So in Romans 15, I'm reading from the New American Standard. It's up on the screen behind you. Let me just read quickly Paul's charge for those who have a mindset for struggle or conflict. Verse 1 says in chapter 15 of Romans, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weakness of those who don't have strength. And we should not live simply to please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his own good and to his own edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but it's written that the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Look at verse 4. For whatever was written in the earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. I don't know if you'd like to mark in your Bible, but Romans 15.4 is a gem. Paul is saying, don't neglect reading God's Word, because as you dive in quickly to God's Word, time and time again, God has a message and a truth and a principle and some reality for 2013, very relevant for your life, as you seek the scriptures. He says, Christ didn't live simply to please himself, and the word of God testifies that the people of God throughout the last 6,000 years of, a, of a Christian or, or Jewish history, God has worked immeasurably in the lives of many who've written their testimony in this, the scripture, the word of God, that we could have hope and encouragement when we struggle. Verse 5, he says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be one of the same mind with one another according to Jesus Christ. This is our charge. The Word of God under the banner of Jesus Christ is to be unified for His glory. Unity in the body. Verse 6, So that with one accord, unity, you may with one voice glorify God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Accept one another, just as Jesus Christ has accepted us for the glory of God. And he, and he, and he moves on. Look at the, the very last verse, uh, verse 13. He says, Now may the God of hope fill you with joy 
and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a charge. I mean, if we didn't do anything else but look at verse 13, this passage will preach because it says, under the banner of Christ, under the ministry of Jesus Christ, his call upon the church and those who call themselves Christians is to find unity by accepting one another with your faults, your baggage, your history, all the junk, all the stuff in your life that has drawn you to where you are in the journey of your life right now, that we accept you and we love you. And our passion is that you would draw yourself, be deepening in Christ, so that with one voice we can worship and glorify God. This morning, I, I want you to write this principle down. This is a very powerful principle that sets up the whole scripture of Acts 15. and It comes out of Romans 15. It's this, the law of liberty is the law of love. The law of liberty is the law of love. What does that mean? That means as we strive for being as Christians, Christ says he died to set us free. That's freedom. We have liberty in Jesus Christ. We're no longer constrained to our sin. We're no longer bound to sin. We're no longer bound to law, the Old Testament law, because we have Jesus Christ who's given us grace, and by faith we are saved in Christ alone, right? And the reality is that Christ has worked all this out for Christians and for the New Testament church so that we could use our freedom and our liberty to give God glory and give grace to those around us. So the law of liberty is the law of love. And Christ demonstrated that. He came to prove that. He came to show that sacrificial, self-giving love. So with that as a banner, Romans 15, the law of liberty is a law of love. Through the power of the Holy Spirit and inspiration, Paul writes this as an encouragement. Let's go back to Acts 15, and let's identify a pattern of conflict that we see in Scripture. So if you understand kind of where Paul's been, Paul has been persecuted. God has greatly used Paul. Paul has seen Gentiles or pagans or those who are not Jews come to Christ in multitudes. And it's interesting because Paul, being a Jew, he goes to the Jewish synagogue first and he reasons with the Jews. And he goes to a city, just like I came to you guys, and you guys don't know me and I don't know you. So Paul starts to describe his salvation experience and what Christ did to come to change his life and radically save Paul's life. And Paul then reasons from the Old Testament scriptures in Hebrew and Aramaic and in Greek with these, his Jewish brothers, what it is to know Christ the Messiah. And some would accept, and some would reject, and some would persecute Paul greatly. Then he would leave the synagogue and then find the rest of the non-Jewish people in that city, and he would proclaim the same truth in a house or in a, in a venue somewhere. And typically, they would have a faction of Jews and pagans that would persecute Paul, and we see that happening in Lystra and Derby and Antioch and a variety of places throughout his ministry. And so now we come to chapter 15, and he is rejoicing at all that God has done, and he is passionate that God has worked phenomenally. But yet here now we see Paul having great marks and scars on his body, having been persecuted for the gospel, having been persecuted for sharing the truth that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and salvation comes only through him. And so he comes back to his home church now in Antioch, and in Antioch he's describing what God has done among all the Gentiles. But here's the problem. Look at chapter 15 in Acts. Look at verse 1. Now some men 
came down from Judea, and they began to teach among the brothers, that's the church there in Antioch, he says that unless you, the pagans or Gentiles, are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So if there's going to be a scriptural pattern for conflict, I want us to, to think about a couple ideas here. First of all, we've got to identify the root issue. When a conflict comes up between you and a person, someone in our church, someone between you and a spouse, between you and your best friend, the, the, the most important aspect to deal with the issue is to identify what is the root issue. That's important. Now, how does that play out? Because as human beings, we, we kind of get things pretty discombobulated quickly, right? There is the root issue, the thing that really is a problem. Then usually that thing shows symptoms, and sometimes we fight about the symptoms, not about the root issue. And then sometimes we move past just the symptoms, and we start getting into personalities. We start fighting personalities, and personalities kind of bring more problems to the real root issue that we've not even dealt with yet. And then you get past personalities, and then you get into worldviews and cultures, how you have dealt with conflict in the past and how maybe your spouse has dealt with conflict in the past. And so you bring two people with two very different life experiences, how they've seen their parents argue and how you've seen your parents argue. Maybe they didn't argue. Maybe they just kind of shut up and maybe they kind of, kind of brought it in closely and, and never did conflict out loud. Uh, maybe you, your parents grew up in some kind of Italian you know, a little, little mini-mart where you've seen the Italians fight. They, they would go to a grocery store. In the middle of the grocery store, they would start throwing groceries and baguettes, and they would just, you know, in the middle of the street, they're going to fight. They're going to, they're going to let it all out, right? You know, they're going, to, they're going to air out their dirty laundry in front of everybody, and at the end of the conflict, they're going to walk away holding hands, you know, and smoking a cigarette. This is great, you know? But the, the deal is, you know, we all have different cultural worldviews how we handle conflict, right? And so, Sometimes we're just trying to fight about how we handle conflict, and we've missed the root issue. So if we're going to be spiritual, there's a, a pattern scripturally of how we handle conflict. We've got to start dividing between not only our cultures and worldviews and our personalities and the symptoms, but to dig down what is really the issue. What's our problem here? And I would challenge you as you do conflict well, as you as you model conflict before your children, before your friends, as we as a church help people in the workplace, in the marketplace, in their own church ministry, counseling, it's important that we would model how to dig deep into what really is the truth. What is the, the pattern here that is causing us the pain? Is it a sin? Is it a sin nature issue? Is it a theological issue? Is it a spiritual issue? What's, what's the root issue here? For Paul, let's go back to verse 1. He said, there was brothers that came down to teach that unless you're circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. So Paul has two problems here. He's got a theological problem and he's got a spiritual problem. He's identified quickly what our, what our issues are. Now, this is powerful because in 2013, Elevation Church is a Protestant evangelical church that holds high the Word of God, has a high elevation of God's Word. And so here's the deal. Today, in our culture, we would pass several churches that would say maybe the very same thing, even in our Christian denominations. They would say that, listen, unless you are baptized in water, you cannot be saved. Well, they would say, unless you were baptized three times, in the name of the Father, dunk, in the name of the Son, dunk, unless you did that three times, and that right, you're not saved. 
Some would say that unless you speak in a tongue, unless you have some kind of ecstatic experience and, and kind of a second blessing, uh, kind, of a, kind of a Pentecostal charismatic type experience that some of you may have come out of, and, and I know a lot of folks that, that are in that kind of uh, culture of Christianity, they would say, but unless you speak in a tongue, there's no evidence you're saved. Some would say that unless you're baptized or unless you're saved in our church or our denomination or go through our confirmation, you're not saved. That's a theological issue that is just as prevalent today as it was in Paul's day 2,000 years ago. And by the way, that's a theological problem because Jesus never put any boundaries on salvation other than you believe and trust in him by faith alone. He says we're justified by faith alone, by grace alone in Christ Jesus. It's not salvation in Christ plus any work plus anything that can make me more righteous or more holy or make me in a better standing with God. It's in faith alone by Jesus Christ, our Savior. And that's how Christ saved us. That's why it is grace. That's why anybody, Jew or Gentile, can come and be equal under the foot of the cross because we, all of us, on our very best day, fall short because of our sin. And we need a great Savior to cleanse us, to forgive us, to save us. We cannot save ourselves. And no religion helps us save ourselves. And so for Paul, he realized this is a big issue. Because all of a sudden we have Jewish Christians here in this new church in Antioch from Judea. And we have Gentile Christians here. And they come from two very different social circles and social rituals and customs. And how do you bring Jewish Christians and pagan Christians, so to speak, into the same roof and call us part of the body of Christ. And so now we have a social or a spiritual problem. So Paul quickly identifies the root issue. This is a theological issue that God speaks to scripturally, and this is a spiritual problem. Uh, now, the, the first issue is to identify the root problem. The, the second idea is this, as far as a pattern, we've got to stick with the biblical pattern of resolution. Stick with the biblical pattern of resolution. And what is that pattern? The pattern is this. Uh, ask the Holy Spirit of God for wisdom as you start to approach conflict. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, ask of God, who gives generously and without rebuke when you ask of God. Now, here's the cool thing. Here's Paul, who's a great disciple of Christ. Here's Paul, who is uh, trying to lead out the church and his passion is that God would be greatly glorified in this circumstance. And so Paul seeks first the Holy Spirit. Number two, Paul tries to deal with this matter privately. He tries to deal with the matter individually, going to these individuals and trying to reason with them biblically and spiritually about the issue. And that's what we need to do as well. We need to have a pattern of dealing with a person one-on-one or dealing with a problem one-on-one in private. It's not, a, it's not a public spectacle. It's not a major issue for everyone to be involved in. in. In this particular case, Paul was reasoning with these men so that they, they would understand what does Scripture clearly teach. So we appeal to the Holy Spirit. And secondly, we appeal to the fact that God would give us grace individually with mercy to reasonably solve this issue one-on-one or, or whomever the issue consists of. We read in verse 2, however, in Acts 15, when Paul and Barnabas had with great dissension 
and great debate with these men, the brethren, that's the church, determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning the issue. At this point, Paul was unsuccessful. Paul and Barnabas were, were absolutely unsuccessful in, in trying to help theologically and reasonably bring to a head with these Jewish men. Now, we're not thinking these Jewish men had the wrong, wrong motivation. I'm assuming that in this particular circumstance, these men loved the Messiah, but they wanted to keep all their Old Testament traditions intact with Messiah. And because they were already circumcised, because they were already Jews, and because Jesus was Jewish and the apostles were Jewish, it just made sense to them that if you're going to become a part of this new way called the Christian way at Antioch, then you come in through Jesus, but into a Jewish custom. Yet Paul had already reasoned that God had done a great work of miracles, and he'd saved a multitude of Gentiles who have no need of Jewish customs. And so we have a true debate, a true issue, and I don't think this, this situation really is sin, but the theological issue that has to be dealt with first is, what does Christ say about salvation? And then secondarily, how do we take Gentiles who come from a worldview and a pagan ideal and, and Jewish people and both under the banner of Christ and bring them together? And it was a real problem. So first, they sought the power of the Holy Spirit. Second, they tried to reason among themselves individually and try to solve the problem reasonably with Scripture. But thirdly, and importantly, because they were not able to come to consensus, they sought a God-given authority in their life to speak to the issue. Now this is powerful because God has called us to live in community, into relationship, in relational community. Why is it? Because if we go back theologically and look at the Trinity, we see God himself has expressed himself in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they relate one to another in relational community. And so when he created this earth and he created humanity on the earth, God created human beings to live in right relationship with God the Father. Yet because God is perfectly holy and man would fall, God created an avenue, an order, so to speak, that man could approach God and His holiness again. And so we see the, the power of the Trinity in relationship, and we see the power of God-given order. And so in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew 18, we see a pattern of resolution where God has given us the order how we deal with conflict in the church. We go one-on-one -on -one individually. And then if we cannot resolve that with that one-on-one -on -one issue, whether a brother has a problem with you or you have a problem with a brother or someone's in sin or someone's bringing division or decision to the church, the biblical pattern in Matthew 5, 23 and 24 and Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, is that then we bring the leaders or the elders or those that would be somewhat in spiritual authority over us and over them into the mix. That's what we see happen in, in verse 2. We see the, the church at Antioch said, listen, we can't solve this. Obviously, this issue is bigger than us. We don't have the personnel or the reason or, or for whatever reason, we need help. And I want you to understand this morning that God has not created you as an island or isolated. As a believer in Christ, you have the freedom to go directly to the Holy Spirit and directly to God as you pray. You don't need a priest or confessor. But that's not saying, though, that you as an individual don't have those in spiritual authority over you. That is exactly how God has created you and I as Christians. That in every circumstance, 
We see order and spiritual authority as a God-given gift to human beings and believers in Christ and for the church. We have parents that are spiritually authority over their children. When you are in a work environment, right, and so you're, you're an employee, you have to go to your boss at times or to human resources at times who stand in authority over you to maybe settle an issue. In the church, you have the pastor and the elders that lead spiritual authority over the congregants, over the, the folks and members of the church. And even at seasons, there will be churches in another, another whole greater body of the Christian church around that would need to seek advice from the leaders of other churches that help solve an issue within their personal church. And this is God-given. This is the authority of God that reflects, again, His nature and reflects, again, order. And this is true for your life. This is true in the Bible. It's true in 2013 as it was when Christ created it. And so in verse 2, we see, again, a pattern that they sought out the spiritual authorities. A third or fourth idea is this. If we have the Holy Spirit we're seeking first, too, we're trying to, to resolve it reasonably in private. And thirdly, we seek a spiritual authority to speak into that issue. Fourthly, we receive in unity whatever decision that that authority speaks over us. We receive in unity whatever decision that spiritual authority has over us because the goal is to keep the body of Christ unified, to maintain unity in Christ, to maintain the glory of God and a high elevation of Scripture that we wouldn't dishonor Christ in any area of our life or our church. And so as we seek spiritual authority, that authority exists in our life, one, to be wisdom and instruction and encouragement. And two, that spiritual authority exists in our life to bring accountability. And so when they give us a charge spiritually, we hold ourselves accountable to those in our life who are spiritually over us. Fifthly is this, that in spiritual conflict, we not only seek the Spirit of God, and we seek to try to resolve the issue reasonably in private. And then thirdly, if we cannot, we seek a God-given spiritual authority to speak into the issue. Fourthly, we receive in unity whatever decision they make. And number five, that we ensure that any consequences or any discipline from that decision results in spiritual restoration for those that would be disciplined or have a consequence. The idea is that, again, Unity is maintained, but sometimes that unity has to come at the expense of someone or a sin or a consequence or even a church discipline that would say, because we love you, because we want God's best for you, you have caused an issue and there's a consequence for that issue. But in our consequence, in our discipline, in our chasing of your life, our heart, our passion is that you be brought back in the fold into restoration, both restoration with Christ and a restoration with our family our body of Christ. And that's very valuable because sometimes discipline, sometimes uh, tough love brings about people who have their heart completely purged from the sin and purged from their self and brought into the need of the body of Christ because we need each other. We were created for community. As we read back through Acts 15, we see that the church had to make some tough decisions. And the decisions were this. Listen, when it comes to the question of are we or are we not going to allow salvation plus something else for our body of Christ? The church unanimously dealt with the problem and said, there is no other way to heaven except through Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12 settled that. And the Jerusalem council with both Peter, 
by the way, who wasn't the Pope at this point and would never be. And then actually we see James, the brother of Christ, the, the author of the book of James, is kind of leading out the council. And then you have the whole church of Jerusalem unanimously say, salvation by faith alone, no circumcision needed. Guys, in faith, you're wrong. Guys, theologically, the word of God is spoken clearly. There's no need for discussion. There's no need for debate. It's Jesus Christ and faith in him alone for salvation plus nothing else. No law, no circumcision, no baptism. Nothing else can save you except the grace and the faith of Jesus Christ in your life. Though baptism is a beautiful expression of the outward, the outward picture of what's happened internally, we don't attach anything to salvation. That's what makes us Protestant evangelical Christians in this church, in our sister church at Rock Point, and in many other churches in our area. Now, some denominations would disagree with that, and that's why we're not necessarily worshiping in the same house as they are, because we give them the freedom to dissent. But the passion of us, we want to elevate the Word of God and where it speaks clearly on the issue, we don't want to ever divide or, or, or err from that. As we kind of land this morning, I, I want to I challenge you with one last idea. To identify the problem is critical when you deal with conflict, and not the symptoms, not the personalities, and not the, the cultural how we argue. Uh, two, we want to make sure that we write the right scriptural pattern of resolution, which is private first, that if we can't handle it, it goes to a public forum with the leaders of the church. But thirdly is this. I want to stress to you that when we deal with conflict in the church, we always deal with clear matters of biblical confusion first before we tackle the gray areas of turmoil. We always deal with the, the clear issues of biblical confusion first. I want to give you five, very quickly, and we're done, five criteria for how do you determine when the Bible is not so clear about an issue in my family, about an issue I'm dealing with. I call this the gray areas of spirituality. Should I or should I not drink alcohol? Is that an issue in 2013? Should I or should I not see this one particular rated R movie? Should I or should I not go to this concert? Should I or should I not X? And so you're going to come up with conflicts in your own personal life, spiritually, and within the church, and there's going to be times when you've got to deal with some, some sticky issues that you're not going to be able to turn to Matthew 25 and say, well, Jesus said right here that you're not supposed to do X, or you're supposed to always do X. Sometimes in the spiritual life, there is some gray area. And so I want to challenge you, when you do conflict, like out of Acts 15, and now we're going to turn to chapter 14 of Romans. How do we handle the gray areas of the Bible? And we'll land the plane. We'll be done in about two minutes. Here's the deal. Turn with you would to Romans chapter 14. The Bible says clearly in the first few verses that we are not to judge one another. Why? Because if we judge one another, we prop ourselves up to be judged by God. Because Christ alone is our judge. But that's totally different than being under spiritual authority, right? He's saying, you and I don't have the right to look into someone else's heart and say, if you do X, you're not saved. He says, I've not given anyone else the authority on the face of the earth to look into someone's heart and someone's spiritual life and say, you're saved, but you're not saved. We can't judge one another that way. The Bible says we judge ourselves. We have 
to test every spirit in the Holy, test every spirit within ourselves according to Scripture to see whether or not we are of the faith. That's Romans chapter 11, 1 Corinthians 11. And the idea is this. However, in spiritual authority, we have the right, though, to call each other out in obvious, overt biblical sin. That's what spiritual accountability is all about. If you're in adultery, it's your responsibility to church to call someone out in open, overt sin who's unwilling to repent and to go to them lovingly and confront them with conflict. Here's five areas, I think, out of Romans chapter 14 that we see. Five questions I would ask you that I would think would help you to identify the gray areas of your life as you make a tough decision. Here's the first one. Number one, is there any clear instruction in God's Word? Is there anything that's clearly given in God's Word that would speak to this issue? Now, I'm assuming there's not, but just in case, you're to seek out Scripture. Don't just assume it's not there. You're to seek out and and meditate and, and pour your heart into that Scripture such that you would know if God has given any clear instruction. Number two is this. How will my decision reveal God's character? How will the decision I make reveal, or the question is, Will my decision hinder the nature or the character of God? So I'm asking you to make a spiritual decision. Romans 14, 17. Let me just read this for you. Romans 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not simply just eating or drinking, but it is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What's the point? The point is, this this text is dealing with, are we supposed to eat meat sacrificed to idols and just Gentiles? Are we supposed to drink alcohol? That is asking about drinking alcohol in Romans 14. And so the prescription here is do drink or don't drink, or supposed to eat this particular kind of meat sacrifice idols or don't. He's saying, listen, we have a bigger issue at hand. It's not about the alcohol. It's not about necessarily what you're eating. It's that rather the kingdom of God is bigger than this. It's about the spiritual issue. Do you remember the very first thing that we talked about this morning? That the fact is the law of liberty is the law of love, sacrificial love. So if we apply that very construct to, to the question of a gray area, all of a sudden we realize that it's not about my rights or my wants or my ideas or my desires, but my freedom as a Christian now is going to be subjugated to the law of love. And the question is, as I'm, I'm, I'm ruling by the Holy Spirit, is my actions, is my decision going to reveal or hinder the nature and the character of God's love? Number three is this. Is there any potential harm to others or risk to myself that would dishonor Christ? Is there any potential harm to others or risk to myself that would dishonor Christ? For example, I think about a restricted movie. There might be a, a movie, for example, that would be uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln. And let's say just because of the gratuitous nature of the violence, it was restricted. All right? So it may not be because of language. It may not be because of, uh, of sexuality or those kind of things. But it might just be so simply because of violence. And so I've got to make a decision. Should my 15-year-old, who's not 17 yet, should they be able to go and see a restricted movie, which is restricted, right? It's given, it's given the warning, the promise. So as a Christian, I don't know, you know, should, should, I, should I, as a pastor, should I lead my family into a rated R movie? So that's, that's, a, that's a legit question, right? But so I've, I've got to weigh the options, and I've got, to, I've got to discern spiritually and biblically and asking myself, because there's no scripture talking about rated R movies in the Bible, no word in Leviticus or Hosea that says that, right? So I've got to kind of say, hey, well, 
is there a spiritual principle here? So under the power of the Holy Spirit, Romans 14, 17, as the Spirit of God's guiding me, is there any clear scripture that says that prohibited? Number two, how will my decision hinder or reveal the nature of character of God? And number three, is there any potential risk or harm to myself or others that would dishonor Christ? Number four, will my decision promote a long-term blessing or a long-term curse for the lost? Or let's say for the weak of Christ, for those who are new believers. Will my decision promote a long-term blessing or a long-term curse for the new believers or for the lost around me? Now, all of a sudden, I'm making a personal decision for me and my family, but I'm considering the consequences for those around me. As they see me, as they see my actions, if I were to go today as a pastor and uh, open a bottle of alcohol or wine or, or beer or whatever it is and sit before uh, Buffalo Wild Wings and, and, and throw back four or five cold ones, I've got to realize that if I stand before a congregation, that my actions, though alcohol may not be a sin for me, particularly or personally, I still would choose rather to refrain so as not to cause anyone that I'm going to lead to Christ or anyone that's struggling with alcohol or alcoholism or has alcohol that maybe killed their parent or maybe it was a drunk driver that killed someone, someone's aunt and it's, it's affecting them. And so all of a sudden, just by my association with that in the public arena, I may choose out of love to say I would not refrain, I will refrain, I will not take that. Just in case someone who's weak might be throwing a big stumbling block. Having said that, I'm not saying that alcohol is of God or not of God. What I'm simply saying is, for me, I've got to decide how my life and my actions in a public review would be seen and taken. Number five is this. Will my decision render an unqualified peace which only Christ can give? Philippians 4, 6 talks about the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding and will guard your heart and your mind. What does it mean? Even when you don't feel like it's the right thing to do sometimes, Christ calls you into it and he gives you a peace in your heart and in your mind. Even when you decide that's probably not the best decision for me, Christ says, but I've called you to this. I'm going to guard your heart. I'm going to guard your mind with the peace that only Christ can give you. Why is that? Because there's certain times as you pray in the power of the Holy Spirit that God would give you insight and wisdom for a hard decision. And he says the law of liberty as a Christian is the law of love, is sacrifice. It's being willing to surrender what you think your rights are, what you think you're owed, or what you think you need for the sake of the body of Christ or for the lost or for the glory of the living God. And this is how Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem, this is how they chose to answer the question, not only theologically, but it's by salvation alone. There's no circumcision, there's no Old Testament required, but also how do we get along with Gentiles and how do we get along with, with Jews, with pagan and, and different rituals, how do we bring them together? And so they ask, if you're a Gentile, would you just choose out of sensitivity culturally to your Jewish brethren not to eat meat that's been absolutely sacrificed to idols and not to eat meat that's been strangled and not to eat meat that's been that's been not cooked and there's blood still just just choose to have a well-done burger if you will right that's kind of what he's saying listen the idea is we're going to choose to be culturally sensitive to those around us because that's the law of liberty that's the law of love and this honors christ this maintains unity it may put you out and it may make you angry Look, look at the very last verse of, of, of verse chapter 14, verse 23. But whoever doubts is condemned in his own life if you eat and you don't think you should. Or if you don't eat, but you think you should eat. 
Because his eating is not from faith. Look at the very last verse. And whatever is not from faith is sin for you. Here's the point this morning. There's going to be conflict in the church. There's going to be conflict in your marriage, among your friendships. And when you have conflict, God has called you to deal with a biblical pattern of conflict. Because conflict is natural. It's healthy. It's normal because it's how we deal with one another relationally. And until we're all perfected and glorified in heaven, on the other side, we've got to learn to get along and be unified. And by the way, to be unified in a marriage, to be unified in anything, is hard work. And God has called us to strive after the law of liberty, which is the law of love. Several, several years ago, a decade or a century ago, there was a man who was a pastor, and he was trying to raise his sons to be faithful in the Word of God. And there was a dog that was not their dog, but the dog always kept coming and staying with them and coming. They'd play with the dog, and the dad loved the dog, and the dog would run off and go back to its owner, and several, you know, maybe several miles down the street. You know, this is out in the country. And all of a sudden, the dog would come again, hang out with these. And so one day, the dad's like, you know what? I'm just going to keep this dog. He's a good dog. He's always with us. He's always here. We're always feeding the dog. We're just going to call him our dog. And the sons were like, but you know it's not our dog. So, so they kept the dog, and they loved the dog. They kept it in the pen. And one day, uh, some guy comes and knocks on the door. He said, listen, I think you've got my dog. He says, you mean my dog? No, I think you've got my dog. He said, well, the dog's been here. He's, he's ours and, and whatever. This is, he's our dog, and we're going to keep him. Whether you like it or not, he's now our dog. Go on about your way. And here's what the pastor wrote several years later in his diary. My sons were watching every move I made. He says, I kept the dog, but I lost my sons. You know them by Frank and Jesse James, notorious thieves and bandits. Conflict is inevitable in the church. It's inevitable in your home. But Acts 15 has given us a pattern of Scripture to say that when we struggle, what has God called us to do? Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, and Paul identifies it again in Romans chapters 14 and 15, that the law of liberty is the law of love. How would I live my life that others would see Jesus Christ and the unity of my life and the unity of this body for his glory? Elevation Church, I pray that it, when, not if, you establish and experience discouragement or conflict, that you would run back to Scripture, identify the problem, you would go through the biblical pattern of resolution. And you always deal with what's clearly in Scripture first before you deal with the gray areas of your life. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, we love you this morning. We know that you are the author of truth. You're the author of Scripture. Lord, you are the author of all things that are right and true and honorable and good. And so, Father, our prayer is this morning that, God, you would choose to just seal upon our hearts in this summer day, this beautiful Sunday, but God, that we are as believers in Christ to run to you in conflict and to hit the conflict head on to allow you, the Holy Spirit, to delineate with us and in between us as believers in Christ. Father, I pray for grace for this church, that you would grow Elevation Church, and that, Lord, as you grow, you would bring in a variety of types of folk in this church that would be welcome and accepted for who they are. And I pray, Father God, that you would move in such a way that this Flower Mound community would see that what you're doing in this church can only be explained 
of the power and the presence of Jesus Christ and his great and immeasurable grace. Father, grow this church for your glory. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.